Hi everybody and welcome to Ness Undorm, your 80s and 90s chat about football. It's Lee here, nice to speak to you all again after my absence of late, but I am still around, I'm doing sound editing and stuff like that, I'm just not getting as involved in the episodes as I was previously. But I'm just here to do a very quick introduction to this episode because our Rob is chatting to Wayne Barton about his book Case Sarah Sarah about United under Sexton and Atkinson. I'll let Rob do a bit more of a fuller introduction, but that's what this episode is all about. Having a good old chat about that period in time for United and about Wayne's book. Yeah, so your your book, Case Sarah is about um, Man United under Dave Sexton and Ron Atkinson. We're just going to talk about Ron because this is an 80s and 90s podcast. We figure we might as well concentrate on him. Um, so he was at United for, what, five and a half years. Um, some people think of it as a failure because they blew the league title a couple of times. Other people think he was a success because he restored glory to the club, FA Cup wins, and also made them regular challenges, which they hadn't been. Which kind of side of that uh, debate do you fall on? Um, if I if I can read a passage from my, my book, actually. <laughs> yeah, cool. Because I, I summarised it, um, it's the final sentence of the book is, if the ability to create positive memories is the most important quality of any football team, then Ron Atkinson's Manchester United were as successful as any. Now, obviously, <laughs> that's the currency of, of memories, and, and Manchester United are in the currency of trophies. And, um, yeah, it's a very difficult one to quantify, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are a lot of old older supporters who remember the dark era and the, the Atkinson era, and will compare the, the football that was played as good as anything that they've seen um, mm. in in the the years that followed after that, so it's it's difficult. Um, I mean, the, the nostalgic side of it is that it was great football inside, but you can obviously see that occasions where it looked like they might be, but they weren't. So um, as as good as it was that they provided memories, um, they didn't. They fell short when when it really mattered. So. You can't really rank them amongst the greatest United sides, unfortunately, mm. because they had some great players. How unfortunate were they with injuries at key times? I mean, not not just the recurring theme was obviously Brian Robson getting injured, but also I'm thinking Steve Coppel retiring early, Remy Moses became massively injury prone from about 85 onwards, and he was a key player. It feels like United had abnormal luck with injuries compared to other teams in those days. Yeah, I think that's a fair fair assessment of it um i think in 83 when the couple injury hit he really tried to atkinson really tried to sort of plaster that gap didn't he, he got mm. alan davis it came in he was doomed arthur graham um, arthur graham um laurie cunningham came in yes, for a little spell there was that, that spell where they were trying to get them in for the 83 cup final and if they'd have played someone better in the 83 cup final that might have been a problem for mm. them, but but it wasn't because um, it was only Brighton in the end, and you know they even took them to a replay. But you are right because I think it wasn't so much that they were beset by injuries all over the pitch, but it was critical injuries at key moments. Uh, Robson, you mentioned, mentioned is a, the obvious one. Moses, it would be like when United got a problem sorted, another one would um, appear. Do you know what I mean? And it was that mm. kind of thing. The eighty-three. 84 season when Robson first did his shoulder he was playing at the top of a diamond mm. <laughs> and then that was a very unusual shape for United to play but that tells you that Atkinson hadn't quite got it right he didn't quite know his best system and that was one that sort of fell on him 
I think he originally, when he brought Muren in from Ipswich, he wanted to partner in with Alan Brazil, but he couldn't get yes. them both at the same time. And then when he eventually got Brazil, Brazil was knackered. Do you yeah. know, it was a, what he, that was a, a, a very much indicative of the problems that faced Atkinson because he'd, he'd fix one problem and another one would appear, and um, it just seemed like. Ne- perhaps this is a, a product of time and patience, isn't it? Because, I mean, five and a half years, Ferguson won his first title after five and a half years. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. if I'm not saying that that one was around the corner for Atkinson, but uh, we're evaluating a, a sample period of size, um, which the preceding managers before, uh, before Atkinson, since Busby, that's about how long anyone had at the best. So... Mm. Um, and then Ferguson got it. He got longer and, and then did win a league title. So how, how long does it take to sort out those kind of problems? How long does, how much luck can someone have in a five-year period? But you can't always put it down to luck. I mean, he made, we'll get onto it, but he made some rash decisions in the end, which sort of cost him as well. But yeah, he, he was unlucky, especially I would say, um, people talk about 85, 86, but I, I probably reckon... 83-84 was his best chance of winning the league and he was very unlucky at that point. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Actually, everyone remembers the 10 wins in a row in 85-86, but they'd actually, they kind of gone by February, hadn't they? Whereas 83-84, I think they thrashed Arsenal 4-0 to go top maybe with 10 games to go. Um, and it looked really good then. And then I think they lost, maybe lost at West Brom and then Robson gets injured again. And the whole kind of, and the annoying thing about that title race is that I think Liverpool kept dropping points in the run-in, but so did United. Yeah. It felt like every two points Liverpool dropped, or three, United would drop the same. Um, so I do agree with you. I think that's the kind of forgotten chance. And the, the other frustrating thing about that, I think they finished fourth in a two-horse race, didn't they? Because they, their form faded so badly in the run-in. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think you said that to me when we were talking well, previously. Fourth, fourth in a two-horse race is perfect. Lots of injuries, though, again. Yeah, like you said, not, not, not Robson. only Robson, um, Muren picked up an injury straight after Robson did and, and they were the two major players at that time The, I mean Robson more of a battering ram but Muren had the culture mm. and they were robbed of both of those players and yeah that was a massive problem for United obviously at that time because we were playing in the diamond I think it was that um, lack of width and lack of creativity which prompted Atkinson to, to go back for, for white players mm. um, because he couldn't rely on that sort of um, creative creative force through the middle. But he really did, um, like you said, that not only Liverpool dropping points, but they had the crucial component of adding John Walk, yes. um, which you know United were in for him, but he chose to go to Anfield. And I think that was one of those, if, he, if United had signed him, then obviously you look at Robson and, and Muren and you think Walk would have fit in that kind of gap whereas Liverpool wouldn't have had him and they wouldn't have had that couple of crucial goals and it would have swung the title to United I mean we're talking um, one player there but it really could have made all the difference in 83-84 um, because like like we said I think that that was Atkinson's best chance and, and it really turned towards it and they were playing good football as well you know with Muren and, and Robson and Moses was playing really well. Um, Whiteside had come into the side, and he was playing up front at the time, right? Mm. I think um, so. They had um, a lot of promising things coming through, but um, yeah, like you said, the, those two injuries, particularly, you know, Muren and Robson, they had a lot of niggling injuries where where players would drop out for a couple of games, 
But those two in particular really damaged United in that running. And <clears throat> around the same time, they had the famous Cup Winners Cup run. Obviously, they came back from 2-0 down in the first leg to beat Barcelona 3-0, Maradona, Schuster and all. Would that be the highest point of Atkins' career or would you say one of the FA Cup wins? I th- yeah, I look at that week because that Barcelona came straight after the Arsenal 4-0, didn't mm, it? So yeah. you've got Arsenal 4-0, Barcelona 3-0. I think in terms of United's trajectory and where it was under Atkinson and its most promising period, I, I think that point. But talking to Atkinson, he does regard the 85 Cup win. Mm. And and you can sort of see why, because Everton were one of the best sides in Europe. It was the best Everton side in history. Mm. And United have beaten them with 10 men. And obviously, they, they weren't on that bounce to then win the first 10 games of the following season. But Atkinson, funnily enough, says that that wasn't the best. He didn't think that United played that well in those 10 games, but it's been blown up by myth because of the television ban. Um, so, it, yeah, I, I think, like we said earlier, I do think it comes to that spring of 84 where United looked at the most promising. And, yeah, it feels... Like such an easy excuse to say, oh, Bro- Robson gets injured and Muran gets injured and United don't win the league, and he sort of falls away from there. But it really did feel like that when you look back at everything. Um, that that said, you know, the following season, 84 85, there was a, one of the reports for The Guardian said when we brought in Strachan and Olsen, he said Strachan, Olsen. Whiteside and Robson. I think it was Whiteside and Robson. He said have United ever had a better quartet. Mm. So it tells you like they were really highly rated and, and a lot was thought of them. Um, and obviously they, they did go on to beat Everton um, with a, a fantastic goal from Whiteside. So yeah, it's um, yeah long-winded answer to just say I agree that I think the spring of '84 that that 4-0 and that 3-0 against Barcelona that was that was Atkinson's pinnacle at United for me. You look at that team and they had some really tough players, physically and mentally. Um, and yet there was a recurring theme of blowing leads late in games. There was a period in, I think, winter 84 when they, successive away games, they lost 3-2 having been tuned up, which is extraordinary. Um, it kind of doesn't tally, you know, you look through the spine of a team, people like Moore and Robson, Whiteside, Moses, um, never mind the quality they had as well. I, something I, I find fascinating about that team, is there any particular reason you think that was or was it something that, started to happen and then it sort of perpetuated itself. You become insecure in the same way that, I don't know, with just any team really, it keeps losing leads, it becomes an issue for them. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good point. The, the, I think it's an element of all of those things. One thing I've always found from talking to players of that era is that they'll easily dismiss the the drinking culture. Mm. And, and, and that's everyone, the that- everyone was on the piss, weren't they? I mean, the, the stories about Liverpool in wherever they went before the 84 Cup final... Basically, they were absolutely legless having a fight. Two of them ended up having a fight because one of them had, I think, taken a piss on one of the others under the table or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, but I also think uh, that's fair. And like every, I think Atkinson went on a on one of their jaunts. Uh, he might have been <laughs> in Fry TV, but well, while he was at United, he went on a Liverpool away trip um, mm. in Europe and he, he came back feeling satisfied that his players weren't as bad as Liverpool <laughs> players. Do you know, and I, I always felt that was a weird kind of attitude to take because obviously if you look at Ferguson's attitude to it, he, he eradicated that was one of the major problems that he did and obviously that did have a massive um, contribution to United's upturn in, in fortunes really because, it, you know, the consequential effects that it has on conditioning. Now, I'm not saying that Atkinson had to be ahead of his time 
in order to conquer Liverpool, but you can't, it did require that kind of thinking outside of the box to, you know, or maybe even, it sounds stupid, but everyone says, oh, Robson was the best player on the pitch on a Saturday after having six nights on a Friday. <laughs> yeah. and, no, and, and no one's saying, don't have the six, eradicate it all completely, but maybe have three maybe points. just have two or three, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And maybe that would have had the difference because, I mean, if, like you mentioned, those two games in particular where they, they threw away the leads... Um, and they lost late on. That is um, a consequence of poor conditioning because it's towards the end of a game and you can't galvanise yourself to to find the effort to close out those last five or six minutes. But I think as well, like you said, it's a mental block that comes into that when they haven't won it for so long, when they are developing a reputation for surrendering those kind of leads, that it becomes its own thing. Um, it comes, like you said, self-perpetuating and... You've got to find either a player who can bring you out of that mentality. And obviously, as brilliant as Robson was, he couldn't do that by himself. Or you need that external effect of changing your diet and and changing your attitude towards it. Because it wasn't just Robson. If Robson could do that on, you know, six pints and he was still the best player on a Saturday, which he often was... That didn't say the same for Whiteside and McGraw, who were mm. brilliant players, who but they obviously caught up with them. And I mean, we're not only talking about the performance on a Saturday; we're talking about injury recovery because, yes, or, or even their attitudes to um, to while they were out. You know, obviously McGraw and Whiteside saw that as downtime. Do you know when it wasn't? It was recovery time, and so that impacted. I mean, obviously, McGraw's a different kettle of fish because he came back and still played like a beast for, for Villa. But you, you understand the point that I'm making in, in how it affected his United career. So, and, and so if you've got seven or eight players like that who can't do what Robson does on a Saturday, then, you know, I think that it, it speaks volumes that United were one of those teams that could easily compete with Liverpool but would throw away a lead against a Newcastle or an Norwich. Do you know what I mean? So, mm. um, and and you see a lot of teams with that kind of problem in this day and age. You know, they only raise the game for for the big teams. But that's a, a mentality thing rather than a conditioning thing. And I think mm. that um, without wanting to labour the point, I really do think that that was a, a, a bigger issue than was made of. You know, it was dismissed and still is dismissed too much by. Some of the players, uh, Gary Bailey wasn't a drinker, and he remembers thinking that it was crazy for them to go drinking after, you know, in the afternoons after training. Mm. Um, Mike Duxbury thinks, I think he agrees with that point that, you know, how good they could, could have been without, with even just reducing the drink, you know, half in it could have had a significant effect on how, how they perform on the pitch. It's probably just worth dwelling on one thing you said there. The record against Liverpool was spectacular, wasn't it? Um, is that one of the strongest kind of bits on Atkinson TV as United manager as well? And also, I suppose it ties in what you said about memories. You know, Arthur Orbiston's late winner uh, at Anfield in 81, I think. Um, the FA Cup semi-final in particular, that amazing yeah. Robson goal. Um, they did, uh, obviously Liverpool often ended up taking the prizes, but United had a brilliant re- record against some individual games. Yeah, it does speak volumes about Robson's capability as a man manager. Uh, yeah, and and the way that he was able to sort of handle the pressure of being a United manager as well, because what we saw under Sexton, and I know we, Sexton is a like, he's a very very start of the eighties, isn't he? Like the mm. first few months, um, well, 
18 months, but it doesn't really come into this. But what we know from Sexton in polarising fashion to, to Ducky is that he didn't really have the personality to handle the job and didn't really deal with the pressure of the media as well as um, at Doherty before him or Atkinson after him. He needed a certain personality to come in and live up to it. And Atkinson's sort of approach to man management and team management was very much trusting the players to believe that they were good enough to play for Manchester United, which seems like a minor point, but it really... At United, for some reason, it, that kind of attitude has a massive effect. You even look at it in this day and age, it's almost like Old Trafford has this spectre of its own, yeah. which it afflicts all the players. Because if you look to the modern era, Jose Mourinho had some incredible talent and players um, he's disposable. And, and yet they all, I mean, yeah, you can put that down, you can certainly put it down to the restrictive management, but you can also see a pattern with those players under different managers as well. And I think that's the kind of problem that Sexton had. But Atkinson, the reason why I'm using that as a comparison is because in in the you know the hindsight and the opposite effect of that that Atkinson had because he he really believed in the players and he gave the players the trust to believe that they were good enough to express themselves on the pitch um, and pl- and play good football. He obviously is something that I mentioned in in the book. I, I think a large part of that does come from the teachings of Jimmy Hogan um, mm. and that's so drilled into the United's way of playing that um, I think it's almost like a subconscious thing because it was obviously first introduced by Jimmy Murphy's sort of his work on the reserve and young players you know in the 40s 50s and 60s that it became so um, integral to United's style of play and then Doherty, of course, who was um, a Hogan student. And and then you've got Atkinson playing a similar style of football. They just believed in a certain style of way, uh, style of football, which is almost like... Um, <laughs> it sounds bad because it feels like you're stealing from Manchester City or like I'm trying <laughs> to say that oh, United had this heritage long before. It's not the same. It's, it's based on the total football principles, but it's a very different interpretation of it. United's always been economy of possession, scoring a goal as quickly as possible rather than bullying the ball off the opposition and just keeping it. You know what I mean? It's always mm. been get the ball in the net as fast as possible, get people off the seat and you know entertain them with the, the thrilling incision of counter-attack. And Atkinson believed in that in the same way that Doherty did. And I believe that, that um, it really... It, it gave United back their identity um, mm. in a way that they hadn't had under Sexton. So I think, you know, Atkinson does deserve a lot of credit for that as much as, you know, we, we sort of... I was getting on his back about the sort of mentality of losing games. I don't think that that came from a, a bad management point of view. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah. think it was something out of the time what it needed that visionary eye of Ferguson, really. And I don't think that's necessarily a stick to beat Atkinson with. How much of the way the Atkinson era is perceived relates to what Ferguson has achieved subsequently? It feels like that's cast a bit of a shadow unfairly on what Atkinson achieved at the time. Yeah, I think that's fair. But also we have to remember that hard line of United um, not winning a league and they only won a couple of FA Cups. Now, that was a, a massive improvement from, well, really, two FA Cups was the most successful since... Wasn't it? So it wasn't yeah. like he wasn't successful. And, and Martin Edwards says that 
Um, he doesn't view it as a failure. He sees it as a very good stepping stone towards Ferguson. I think that's fair. But but Atkinson also says that he played to win, not to entertain. Mm. So he would himself see it as a failure, even though if people look back at it now and they say, oh, well, there were some glorious times, he was dismissed because he couldn't win the league. And he mm. knew that. So, um, yeah, I, I think history definitely isn't fair to him only because of what Ferguson achieved. But then... That's the problem that you face when you're followed by the greatest manager that ever lived. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a very unfortunate um, perspective for him to be viewed from, but unfortunately, that is the reality of it. And I think that he's a an experienced enough football man to to know that that's unfortunately how mm. it um, how it would reflect on him because he didn't win the league, and at the end of the day. You, what can what can you do about that? You've got to be realistic and say, well, you didn't win the league. Yeah, entertaining football isn't quite enough, and um, you know he went other way, other places, and won trophies, and is renowned as one of their greatest ever managers. Do you know what I mean? So he would, I think, he would sort of um, appreciate the balance. Mm. One thing I found really interesting in the book: a recurring theme is of players who almost join United, um, and for one reason or another, transfer didn't go through. Who who yeah. do you think were the most important people on those lists? Peter Shilton was a recurring one. So when was that? When when did they go for him? Was that the so when Atkinson the, took over? That's um, yeah. He, he claims that he was offered Shilton and he he passed up on him because he was going to give Gary Bailey a chance. Mm. He did. He I think he he originally walked into Old Trafford thinking I'm not sure on Gary Bailey, but he saw him at close quarters. Yeah, and decided that that wasn't an emergency and that he would um, keep. Trying with that, obviously, Shilton had been a name mentioned in the seventies. I think that's yes. one of the infamous Dockett he misses as well. Um, Gary Lineker's another one. Yeah, um, when he went to Everton, the great story. Uh, yeah, uh, but Lineker always said that he wasn't even considering United, which I, I found a little bit strange. Um, apparently, when he was at Leicester as well, Jimmy Murphy had recommended him to Sexton, mm. and Murphy had been particularly annoyed that um, Sexton had said no to that. That was one of the the ones that put his nose out of joint. Mm. Um, you know, unfairly being pushed out of the door for you know how I feel about Jimmy Murphy. I don't yeah. get to labour the point <laughs> on that. But um, yeah, so there were there were a few near misses. The Trevor Francis one is an amusing story because that just lingered for for years afterwards. Oh yeah, I love I absolutely loved this story because Francis. I think Atkinson wanted him, but then when he sort of came down to it, he thought, no, his injury problems are going to be too too much of an issue for all of us, so we have to turn him down. And Francis actually confronted, I say confronted, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but Atkinson went round, uh, Francis went round to Atkinson's house while Atkinson was manager at United, and it was a pre-Christmas drink or something, so I don't know, how, they must have been quite friendly for that to have happened, but Francis questioned him and he said, oh, well, um, why didn't you ever sign me, Ron? And he said, well, I don't really want to have to tell you this, but it's because because of your injury problems. I just don't think we could have counted on you for a, a full season. <laughs> Francis took it really badly. <laughs> I mean, the, you know that story, the the famous one of him being sacked on his birthday and him saying, oh, but it's my birthday. Yeah. The Trevor Francis one. There's this an element of this that I, I can't get out of my head because afterwards, and this is jumping from ahead of this book, um, when Ferguson took over at United and, F- and Francis was manager at QPR and Paul Parker was playing for QPR at the time 
And it was the end of the season, it might have been 89, and QPR played. It was a dead rubber game. Nobody, um, neither, QPR won, but neither side stood to benefit from it. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those kind of games. Yeah. And um, But Francis came in with champagne. <laughs> like, and, and Parker was astounded. Do you know, he couldn't believe that. What are you doing? Why are you celebrating this with champagne? But he was so desperate to get one over on United that he, he stayed with him for all that time. <laughs> Uh, because it because Parker said I think QPR won the next week or they they'd won the previous week and they hadn't they hadn't celebrated with champagne. So it tells you everything that you need to know about the mentality of Trevor Francis and how not not in a bad way, but how affected he was by the fact that um, he'd been snubbed by Atkinson. Um, so that was the most interesting one for me. If, um, yeah, if he celebrated like that in a QPR game, imagine what it'd have done if they'd. One and the Sheffield Wednesday had won in the Steve Bruce game and buggered United Soul <laughs> Challenge. They'd still yeah. be celebrating now. Um, yeah. So I'll just, just run through for people who aren't that familiar. 82 83, United win the FA Cup. 83 84, Cup Winners Cup semi final and very close to the title, but then finished fourth. 84 85, Everton run away with the league, but United beat them in the FA Cup final with 10 men. Famous Norman Whiteside goal. Then 85 86, United start with 10 wins in a row, which, as you say, the football wasn't always spectacular, but the results obviously were one short of, I think, Tottenham's all-time record. But then it unravelled so quickly that within just over a year, Atkinson uh, had been sacked. So why did it go so quickly, do you think? Uh, This was like a a number of reasons at that point, wasn't it? I think Mm. So being in charge for four and a half years, he had Mick Brown as his assistant, and I don't think the players really liked him that much. So there was a, probably talk around 1985 that he was going to bring in another assistant. I think mm. the players might have responded to that. But he stuck with Mick Brown, and the players just undermined him. Whenever they went anywhere, Mick Brown would be the butt of the joke. Do you know what I mean? And, and Which yeah. is kind of good in a, a, a certain way, because you want that kind of camaraderie. But, but, but yeah, it goes exactly. too far yeah. sometimes. And and if you become the butt of the joke and you're not respected, then you're not going to have that respect when you get back home on the the training pitch. Also, Atkinson was always walking the fine line of the balance between wanting to, you know, there was that. Um, there's a line in the book, isn't there, about one of the reporters who who joked about him being the the star of the five sides. Mm. I think I likened it to uh, Brian Glover in Kez. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you're almost characterising him. So you've always got to strike a, a fine balance when you're that kind of character as manager. And and some of the senior players by this time, particularly a player like Mike Duxbury, who had proven time and time again that he was good enough to play for United, but was always fighting against someone mm. for his position. And I'm not saying that that wasn't the right thing to do for for Atkinson because, you know, John Gidman was a brilliant player. But, you you know, players like Siverbeck comes in mm. and he wasn't good enough for United. So at Duxbury would have his nose put out a joint by that. So rather than stick with the senior players who got you through that mess or even turn to the youth team, he was bringing in a lot of these, um, you know, short-term senior players, the Gibsons, Siverbeck, um, you know, there were goth crooks came in on loan for a little bit. These were players who, when I talked to Atkinson about it, they all made some kind of logical sense. He was saying, well, I wasn't going to spend a lot of money and if they came in and did a good job, then mm. it, it would be a gamble that turned out right. But the, the consequence of that gamble is that you upset a senior player mm. uh, if, if it doesn't go right. So you had a few of those players who had sort of um, grown weary of him and didn't really trust in him. Um, but then again, you've got the injuries. There was a massive injury crisis in, in the second half of that season mm. and they didn't really recover from that. 
Um, I wouldn't say that that, again, that's not down to Atkinson or, or the conditioning. Maybe the recovery part of that is a problem. But then those kind of things got away from them and they couldn't get that momentum back. So just as they had the momentum of the good form earlier in the season that carried through even though the performances weren't great, they couldn't get it back once they started losing it. Um, and then Atkinson, I think himself, started to run out of ideas because he offered his resignation to to Edwards in one of the last games at Watford. Mm. Um, they drew 1-1 and he said, I think that's it for me, isn't it, Mr Chairman? And Edwards actually convinced him to give it another go you know, for the following season. So probably the second half of that season, he was... Um, you know, he was running out of ideas himself. And if you're doing that, you can't really lead from a, pa- a position of conviction, can you? Mm. The, that, the players, especially at a club like United, are going to see through that. Um, curiously enough, Clayton Blackmore um, blames the pitchers as much oh, as anything. Because oh, they were diabolical, weren't they? Yeah, and I think that is, it is an interesting thing. I don't think it, you know, is it a leveller? At the end of the day, Liverpool could play play you off the pitch and, and bully you off the pitch as well. So I think, you know, the Liverpool were just a great team as well. Gary Bailey will just give props to to the great Liverpool sides, you know, because in any period of time, in any period of history, one team is going to be better than another. And Liverpool had a great side, so you can't just say, um, or Everton had a great side as well, so you can't just say, oh, United could have won every single league title in history and make excuses for it. You know, particularly this one, though, they, they should have won it from the position of strength that they were in. Um, I think the signings um, really got away from them, you know, the way that he was making the signings. Also, not bringing in the young players at that point, you know, because he was making the gambles mm. of um, bringing in a Gibson or, or a Crooks. So the players, or, or the massive mistake he made of selling Mark Hughes as well. Yes. Um, that was massively unpopular. So you had all these sort of things that were coming together and then obviously he, he sort of knew at the end of that 86 season that he wasn't going to be able to turn it around. Um, but then he, he came back from um, the World Cup and incidentally Martin Edwards felt that that was his first mistake. He should never have gone to the World Cup. He should have stayed hmm. at Old Trafford and tried to fix, things, fix the problems. Oh, because he was but, doing commentary, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he came back wanting Terry Butcher and yes. the funny thing about that when they came back from that he was saying well Edwards wasn't as serious about winning the title because he wouldn't invest in Terry Butcher and also he felt that Edwards was concentrating more on the basketball side that they were launching <laughs> it's ludicrous when you look back and think about it but yeah he, he he thought that Edwards wasn't as serious about winning the league and whereas Edwards thought that Atkinson wasn't as serious um, as you know, he didn't feel that he had the passion to to carry on with the job as, you know, he, he suspected at the back end of the previous season. So it went on for a little bit into into that following season, didn't it? Really, and um, f- funnily enough, though, Edwards, I mean, it didn't end in the acrimonious way that Doherty's relationship with the club mm. ended. You know, Atkinson always had a good relationship with Martin Edwards afterwards, and the the reports you must have seen the news reports of Atkinson. You know, the day after. <laughs> He was sacked in his back garden on ITV, and he just <laughs> yes. he just took it on the chin. Like you could have just told him that you know World War Three had started, or you could have told him you could have told him the worst or the bed, best news in the world. You could have told him he's he's just had triplets, or he's just won five million pound of the lottery. Mm. And you just imagine that his his demeanor would have been the same. You know what I mean? He just like yeah, well, whatever. We just move on to the next thing, and um, yeah, it was a. Uh, 
sad in the way they ended, but everything ends, doesn't it? So yeah, and it, but it had become inevitable, hadn't it? I think they were in the relegation zone. They had a abysmal start. Obviously, lost four one at Southampton in the League Cup. I was going to say, do you think there was an element of relief for Atkinson because he had, had such a hard year? He started to look quite haunted, and I guess he knew it was coming. There was, and it, maybe there was an element of relief to be put out of his misery and be away yeah. from the pressure. I don't know. Perhaps an interesting thing that I did say, I, I did find from from some of this is. As much as I said that about Duxbury and some of the senior players that turned against him, there was still a core that was very much in mm. Rob, in Atkinson's corner, none more so than um, than Brian Robson. And in the reports in the press in the weeks before Atkinson was sacked, Robson was almost taking the speculation personally. Mm. He was, you know, in in a deep contrast to how you would see it these days with players who just yeah. distance himself <laughs> yeah. from anything. He was saying no, throw a manager under the bus. Yeah, exactly. And he was not having it. He was he was taking the responsibility for it, and that went as far as um, well, even probably the month in which he was sighted. You know, he was still defending him, saying he's going to be the right man mm. for him. Which I mean, you really needed your captain anyway, which shows that he was the right man for the job. Funnily enough, Rob, you know, everyone always remembers that Southampton game. Can yeah. you remember the last league game? Didn't didn't they win 5-1 or something? Oh, no, they beat 5-1. No, I don't actually know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nobody remembers. They've not lost in five leagues. But they were on a half-decent round, weren't they? Yeah, they've stabilised yeah. it a bit. And I remember that. Yeah. But yeah, they, um, they got battered against Southampton, which obviously the League Cup meant a lot more back in those days than it does now. It really did, yeah. You spoke to quite a few players and also to Ron Atkinson for the book. Was there anything in those conversations or in your research that really surprised you? I think more that Atkinson was more serious than... Um, than The image. Yeah, than, than most people give him credit for. but And that's because I'd written... Mike Duxbury's autobiography and also Clayton yeah. Blackmore's and, and they obviously Mike didn't have the best relationship with him and Clayton had a great relationship with Fergie afterwards mm. so Atkinson was always painted in a different light to those I should have also separated it from my relationship from you know I've, I've worked with Tommy Doherty so many mm. times and spent so much time with him and I've always found it and and, and again I'm, I'm deviating from the point but you'll see where I'm going at the end of it um, Doki whenever you talk to him and I, I always tried my hardest to try and get dig beyond the, the quotes and the persona yeah, to yeah. try and get a little bit deeper and tell me a little bit more about his, um, his footballing philosophies and he just all it came down to was always oh, Tommy Kavanagh would screw up the team sheet of the opposition and throw it in the corner, you know, in the bin in the yeah. corner. And and that was it. And I was like, that can't be it, Tommy, because that's so reductive for something so brilliant. Mm. And so I was hoping for something better from Atkinson, but I sort of expected the same kind of thing because he has that. I was just thinking he's going to live up to the personality, you know, the, the image that you've seen of him. But I did talk, before I talked to Ron, I talked to Graham Hogg. Mm. Um, he of... Maradona bossing him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he, he actually said that um, Atkinson was much more smart than people gave him credit for. He went through a profiling against Aston Villa who had two strikers and Hogg was told which way they would run and how far they would drop off him. Atkinson went into some detail on this mm. and Hogg said that that was typical of how we would approach different games. Obviously, he didn't have to tell him what to do with Maradona because <laughs> what do you do? He just... Cross your fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. So, but other players, he was much more detailed on. Um, 
maybe it's because he had a good relationship with, you know, past relationship with Villa, I don't know, but that was the one example that Graham mentioned to me. So I already knew that, I already hoped that talking to Ronnie would be more detailed than what Docky had been at least. And he was, he was um, not so much in in any great detail. He didn't break it down in, you know, in the Dave Sexton kind of way. He didn't break mm. open a textbook and go through, you know, this is what I want a certain player to do. This is what the defenders should do. But it was a, a lot more detailed than what uh, Docky was. And he was one of those, obviously depended on the players that he had at his disposal. But like I said, the the sort of punchline from it was I, I played to win, not to entertain. Do you know, and I think that um, yeah, if if I've done anything with the book, I hope that it sort of readdresses that point a little bit, rather than you know lumping him alongside someone who just played flippant football, mm. off the cuff kind of style. He was more serious than was given credit for, and I thought you know he was a brilliant manager and that he was a good manager for Manchester United. Um, if he was ultimately a failure. Then that's because of not winning a league title, but I don't, I wouldn't class him as a failure because I think it, everything's relative, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good point you make. And actually, I, I was surprised, slightly surprised, how good their defensive record was because I sometimes feel like the team is bracketed a bit alongside teams like Liverpool, Spice Boys, Keegan's Newcastle, you know, slightly frivolous yeah. teams. But actually, that's not probably fair on this team. The defensive record generally, I know they had the odd game, you know, like they lost 5 0 at Everton in 84 and so on, but generally, the defensive record was absolutely fine. Yeah, they had some massively talented individuals. Paul McGraw, obviously. He would walk in, at his peak, he'd walk into any Manchester United side. Mm. You know, Gary Bailey, a lot more underrated than what I think people just sort of, again, they look at the 79 Cup final and, and said that that's what he was like as a goalkeeper, but he was actually very capable. Mm. Um, he had a lot of good professionals in there. Arthur Alvison played hundreds of times for United. Mm. Um, one of the best left backs we've ever had, but never enters the discussion discussion of the best ever Robson obviously could walk into any United side and never let it down um, so yeah there, there was a, and Remy Moses another great um, defensive shield in midfield um, McGraw booking it towards the end of his career uh, but still a very capable defender so United had some yeah it, it's a tough one because then you've got the other side of it of you know someone like a Siverbeck or Mark Higgins who comes mm. in again it sounds like a not the most stupid gamble to take because they're only paying the insurance thing. But when it looks so, he had officially retired, hadn't he? And they had to pay yeah, the insurance. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. To get him, and he, I think they'd they'd had him on the books for a while. But he was playing reserve team football, and it was if he played league football, they'd have to pay the insurance on him, which they did because they had a crisis. Um, and obviously, his injury got the better of him. He wasn't capable of playing first division football. In Atkinson speak, it seems like a very logical decision to make, but in hindsight, when you look at it, it looks like a catastrophic signing, mm. doesn't it? It looks really like a, one of those worst decisions of his era. So um, so you had some really good defenders and then some disasters as well. Um, so the balance, like you said, sometimes it would result in a 5-0 against Everton, but it wasn't quite the same way like Liverpool or, mm. or Newcastle, like you said. There was a, a serious professional edge there, but but those elements which we've already discussed often go in the way. And actually, one thing we should acknowledge is the quality in the opposition as well. Liverpool and Everton were bloody good teams. You know, there are times in English football when it's been stronger than others. And yeah. it feels like Atkinson was competing at a time when 
competition was formidable. Just one last question. Where would you place him in the list of greatest United managers? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we obviously know the top two, but... Yeah. The argument is whether he he sits alongside Doherty or which order those two come in. For Mm. for me, that's the argument. Some people might say Mourinho based on the trophies that he won. Um, You know what I mean? I'm not saying he he won a lot, but obviously we're talking about one or two here, which is the same kind of margin. But I think... Um, Obviously, Mourinho. Just to sorry to drop Mourinho is obviously the criticism of him as much as anything was style, and that's one thing you could never really criticize Atkinson or Doherty for. Oh, and yeah. I, I guess that's why it all comes back to what you said about memories. I guess that's why people still do remember the Atkinson era so fondly, Cause style yeah. of play and specific memories. You know, Whiteside's goal at Wembley and so on. Yeah, and 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 Robson, such a standout figure mm. in. in Probably a more dominating way than any player of the Doherty era. Um, do you, I know Book Book do, and. Do you think you know. non-United fans realise or appreciate how good Robson was? No, um, no, I don't. I don't even think a lot. Of, I think a lot of United fans don't. I think they just maybe it's a modern thing, and they're so keen and you know, and Keane obviously isn't a player who would again walk into any United side, but Robson was keen. With the goal scoring, mm. wasn't he really? I'm not saying Keane in his early. If you imagine Keane in his earlier career with his later influence, that was Robson throughout his career, wasn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, a fit Robson at his peak knocks Keane out of an eleven. So, and and also we we going back to the mid eighties with Robson in the side, United absolutely blast. Maradona's Barcelona. Hmm. Maradona gets free run on an England side without Robson in the side yeah. in, in 86. I'm not saying, you know, Robson... Well, I am saying it, aren't I, really? You know, Robson could have stopped Maradona and it influences the, the passage of time. And, you know, it would he have been... He's, he should be in the discussion of the greatest players ever, shouldn't he? But he's not. Hmm. He's nowhere near it. And I don't know why. Maybe it is the injuries. Maybe it's missing the key moments like he did, he missed so many key moments when we're talking about 84, he was out for that crucial running, so he's defined he's defined by his absence, so, but you can't mm. define the quality of a player in his absence and you can't elevate him to greatest United player ever by the fact that he missed United's um, running in 84. In the same way, as sombre and as morbid as they sound in the same way that you can't with some of the Munich players you, you know it's mm. impossible to evaluate how how good they they were I mean a player like Duncan Edwards is different because they'd already achieved you know they'd already achieved a couple of league titles they'd got some credibility under the belt but Robson didn't have that in the 80s he didn't have the league titles under his belt so unless he had that unless he could prove that he'd achieved at that level and he never did until the, the latter end of his career so, yeah, I think there's a few elements that go against Robson. Of course, that sort of... And it sounds like a noose around his neck, doesn't it? You know, like the six pints, the nine pints mm. on a Friday night, because then you think, well, did he let himself down? And I don't think he did. Like you said, I think he's a player of the of the era and that he was just doing what everyone did. But without that, could he have elevated United to winning league titles and winning European Cups? Um I don't know, and that's a great unanswered question, and that's probably why, even though many supporters a little older than me will idolise Robson as the greatest ever, in their eyes, their favourite every United player, for some of us who are looking at um, 
a more, well, a less um, studied reflection of him actually just watching him play and, you know, like dominate games in the same way. We're looking at it on a projection of history. It makes it almost impossible to, to put him in that argument, as difficult as it is, because I think, critically speaking, there's enough evidence that says that he should be regarded as one of the best. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, so, yeah, do you want to just tell us a bit where people can buy the book? And also, you've got another book out, haven't you, at the moment? Might as well, might as well plug that as well. Yeah, yeah why not? Um, so, Kesarasara can be bought on Amazon, but I think you should always, especially at this time, support independent publishers where you can. So, um, it's through Pitch Publishing. They've done a great job with the book. I absolutely love it. Um, and I love working with Pitch as well. So, pitchpublishing.co.uk. Um, that came out in March and the most recent book is the the biography of Eric Cantona. Not strictly a biography, more of a study of his time in England and the sort of cultural and economic impacts that he had on United and that's called King Eric, Portrait of the Artist Who Changed English Football. It's actually released today as we're discussing <laughs> having this having this podcast so it's release day and um, yeah, um, Cantona for me was, you know, uh, Robson is everyone else's favourite player from the 80s, like Cantona's mine, and he's exactly the same kind of argument. Where does he fit in the greatest ever players? Do you know what I mean? And I'll say that he's my greatest ever, but people say, oh, he's nowhere near as talented as Ronaldo. I, um, he's another one who's weirdly underappreciated, Cantona. I think with him, it's just envy, to be honest. But um, but he's yeah. more of non-United fans. But he, he never comes up in these discussions of best Premier League player or most influential, which is just bizarre. But anyway, that's that's for another podcast, maybe. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely mine. I'll, I'll ignore all manner of objectivity. To... <laughs> he, he was definitely the best ever, in yeah. my point of view. I won't even entertain a discussion otherwise. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. Great. Oh, well, thanks for coming on. It was really good to chat. Thank you. Take care, man. Cheers.